Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes you read an article or you watch something on the news and you start to realize that what you initially thought the story was about, that's actually not the real issue. So the story I'm about to tell you is kind of a story about new technology, but it's really a story of economics and time. Lots of wasted time. In cities today, the average speed traveled is eight miles an hour. Robin Chase has spent a good chunk of her life thinking about how cars have changed us and how we should change them. Almost two decades ago, she co-founded a company called Zipcar, which allowed people to share cars mostly in urban areas and on college campuses. It caught on quickly, and it was ultimately bought by the car rental giant Avis. Now, she says, a huge issue that very few of us are paying attention to is self-driving cars. Not the fact that they're coming, which they are, and a bunch of cities, they've already arrived and they're going to be on the market in the next few years. What we're not paying attention to is that they've got the potential to change cities in a really big way. So if we think about cars today, they have a driver in them. And that driver, whether it's me personally or a paid driver, is a considerable expense to what I choose to do. When you take out that driver, we have lost a huge expense that has now constrained me from using the car for all sorts of things. So, for example, for me personally, to run an autonomous vehicle, it probably costs $1.50 to $2 an hour if it's electric. And so think about parking in downtown Boston. Would you even pay for a parking meter or just have your car circle the block? Would you ever, ever pay for a $20 parking space? Never. And that would be a disaster. We would have zombie cars on the street all the time. And sadly... There's more. So think about retail. And if you don't have to pay a driver, imagine, here's my new nightmare, imagine Amazon Prime, and instead of having their warehouse out in some suburb someplace, the warehouse will be on wheels and on the street. And so, yeah, you can have your delivery in 15 minutes because they will be warehousing all their goods on our streets. Robin Chase has made it her mission to avoid this scenario, to talk to mayors, to governors, to anyone who will listen about what is literally coming down the road. And she says there is good that could come from self-driving cars, as long as we don't stand back and let the dominoes fall. One thing that's in that ray of hope category is that companies at the forefront of making these newfangled things seem to be trying to ease us into the future. So when we talk to when Ford or Tesla or Uber or Google discuss autonomous vehicles, they are all saying that the first ones will be sold as fleet vehicles where you can buy a seat in a car. So it'll be like a mini bus, a four-person bus or five-person bus. That's how it's going to roll out. So if we have for five years in cities the opportunity to use these cars as buying a seat or buying a whole vehicle for your trip, we will all adapt to and think, man, that is like fantastic. Why would I ever own my own car? We will start imagining and living that new world. And just what's really incredible is the OECD has done this incredible study using real origin and destinations and number of passengers and time of day for the city of Lisbon with autonomous vehicles. And they've said that if we shared trips in shared cars, 
we would only need 10% of the cars on the roads today. Imagine if we carried this through to its end point. There would be no on-street parking. There would be no parking garages. And if you think of dense cities, we could have those wide sidewalks. We could have really safe bike lanes. We could have trees. We could have sandboxes. I mean, whatever, whatever we want and pull back the domination of cars in cities and get all the transportation that we want. So we wouldn't be sacrificing anything. We'd only be gaining something. Here's my problem, though, with buying a seat in a car versus buying a car. And you can tell me why this is maybe doesn't make sense. If you and I both buy a seat in a car and a couple other people too, and we all say, here's the thing. We are going to leave our homes like around 8.15. We kind of need to be into work by 9. I generally leave somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30. And you can imagine everybody wants their cars at the same time. And they want them when they want them. Like they don't, if they want to leave at 4.30 that day, they don't want to wait till 5.15 for some car to come pick them up. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. This study was with existing times. No one was waiting. People were waiting a maximum of three minutes in this study. And but so how would you deal with that? And that with... still only needs 10% of the cars. So right now in the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a study done. So peak time, only 10% of the cars that are registered are in motion. Really? Like 845? Yep. 8.30? Really? Yep. Can you imagine when we get into this world of self-driving cars where traffic could be potentially terrible, as you say, if we all have our own self-driving cars and they're just sort of idling during the day. Can you imagine Americans really making the choice to say, no, I'm going to share, you know, I'm not going to have the convenience of having a car where I can just put the kids, you know, soccer cleats in the back and yeah, I mean, just you know think, how just things are so like I, listening to whatever I want on the radio and singing out loud to it. You know, like, you know what cars what are. What I love about this conversation is if anyone were the right person to make this argument, I am. So when I did Zipcar, <laughs> you know, everyone said, oh, no, Americans love their cars. You know, their status is caught up in their cars. They have to have their own cars. And right now, a million people are sharing 13,000 Zipcars in cities across the world. So one million people decided, wow, this is way better for me, and I'm going to take my clubs into the car. If we think about children, the piece I want to point out to you, I, I have three kids and who are now grown, but women in particular are slaves and chauffeurs of their children. And you will recognize that. And I was, certainly. And with self-driving cars, I would be freed of that. So there probably will be the kids going to soccer minivan. And yeah, your kid's older than the age of, I don't know what age, nine, ten, and they're going to go pick up the kids. They're going to all go and they're all going to pour out of the van and it's going to say, beep, 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 someone left their heavy cleats in this van. And then they're going to get their cleats by themselves out of the van. And so I see it as a incredible tool of freedom. Like, man, I don't have to be the one to go do that rock climbing gym practice out on 128. I don't have to do that anymore. She can go by herself. So you're going to have, I just want to visualize this, you're going to have a minivan, which a bunch of nine-year-olds. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's really interesting. No, it's really interesting to, to decide. Practice. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking, so what is the age at which legally we would say you can put an, someone unattended in? And right. it's an interesting thing. And so we'd think, I was thinking, is it 12? Is it 11? I don't know. It's an interesting, interesting thing. But I'm sure there is an age, and it'll be less than 16. And so there'll be a huge delta in there in which, yeah, I'm not having to drive my kid around. You know, um, we talk about this like it's some sort of vision of the future. But in some ways, there are countries where uh, some version of 
not having to drive your own car to work has already happened. I, I, I mean, I've talked to people in India who have drivers who said that anybody who can possibly afford a driver, and it, it's not, uh, it's a, you know, a, a relatively lower cost there, does. Um, they work while they're in the car, right? The, you know, this idea of like getting your work done while you're in a car. Um, and the traffic is a disaster. I mean, it takes forever to get to work. The upside is you're already working on your presentation while you're in the car, but you're stuck in that car for a long time. And then I guess while you're at work, the driver, I don't know. I, I don't think they could be a driver for too many other people because if everybody's going to work in the morning. But So I think that's a beautiful example. And that's to my dystopian view that in those countries, labor is incredibly cheap. And so it's effectively a self-driving car because you're paying that person $4 a day or $5 a day to be your driver. And so we do see exactly what you described. So we have two different things that we can bring to this future. One is, and it's starting to happen in India, um, one is that with apps, people are, there are some companies that have started that are doing shared drivers, right? They are doing that today. And so we have this, we can apply technology to it and if we come back to the changed economics once you take out the driver, I think we really have to rethink how we tax. What are the user fees for roads? And we have the gas tax today, which is inadequate and hasn't been changed in like 19 years. Um, and as our cars get more fuel efficient already, that's inadequate. So if we have electric AVs, which is likely to happen, so I should, yeah, so electric autonomous vehicles, those cars will not be paying for, they won't be paying for highway maintenance. They won't be paying for bridge repair. They won't be getting speeding tickets. They won't be paying for parking garages. So all the ways, not all the ways, 60% of the money, I'm making up a number, you know, something between 60 and 80% of the user fees we apply to transportation to pay for road and bridge repair will disappear and evaporate. So we do have to think up a new system. And while we think of a new system, let's correct all the things that we know are already broken right now. We already know congestion is a ridiculous thing that we need to be incentivizing people. Please don't everyone leave at 8.02, even though you know what the traffic's going to look like. Yes, you should think about ride sharing. Right now, 75% um, of all trips in the U.S. is one person in their big car. And that's why we have congestion. It's not that we don't have enough roads. We have plenty of roads. What we have is people driving around in big monster cars by themselves. So if we applied technology, we can that congestion can evaporate. And we need, as I say, we need to rethink how we charge people to use roads. It seems like in some ways we've been mostly talking about the, the applications of technology seem like they're mostly reliant on a pretty dense environment. But, but if you look at a lot of cities where things, it's very expensive to live, people who are middle income or lower income very often have been pushed to the outer suburbs, are making very long trips in every day in their cars. They don't really live that close to anybody. They certainly don't live very close to a rail line or a subway. I mean, that's just not an alternative for them. They might live down a very long driveway. I mean, these are not people who are living right next to other people. Um, what do you do? That just does I not think, seem uh, like an easy solution. I think this will really help with that solution. So right now, if we think about this being people uh, like autonomous vehicles, part of an autonomous, autonomous vehicle. vehicles, I think are going to really, really help um, 
suburban and rural transportation, and particularly, I would say, in addition, and in addition, the rural poor. So right now, the suburban and rural poor who can't afford a car are spending an hour and a half and, you know, three changes and the bus only comes every 20 minutes. And if you miss it, well, then you're screwed and then it's two and a half hours and then you lose your job or you can't pick up your kid from daycare. It is That is nightmarish. This will completely transform those lives. What's been interesting about this driving piece is with autonomous vehicles, if we have small enough ones, like four to six people, even if you live in a rural place, imagine that if you drive yourself and you're stuck, you're doing your traffic, so your normal commute is 45 minutes, Right. Imagine if it's 50 minutes and you're going to pick up two other people and you're now online, that you don't have to pay attention. I think, I think people will choose that and they will do that and I think we can give them that. So I, th- I think it will play out. If we go back to what um, Elon Musk or Mark Fields of Ford are thinking, um, another alternative of this vision is that when the price comes down and now say, let's go out 10 years, not in five, not in three, not in five, but in 10 years, the price has come down. What I think will happen is some people will choose to own their own autonomous vehicle and they will rent it out to other people when they're not using it. So right it's now... Like the Airbnb of it is. autonomous so, vehicles. Right. So right now, um, you use your own personal car for 5% of the time. It's idle 95% of the time. And as I said, it's the second most expensive thing you buy. So instead of people having a two-car household, they'll have a one-car household and they will rent their neighbors or near autonomous vehicle for that second car. Are people who run cities, who make rules about transportation and, you know, what people can own and how much it costs for them to do that and penalties for, you know, using things the wrong way, are people uh, thinking about the potential kind of nightmare of having your autonomous vehicle circle the block and wait for you to come out of your out of the hair salon? No. So this is really what I'm doing these days is if we think of this two, this future that I that I've painted, I want to call one internal combustion engine personally owned cars will now turn into maybe electric, maybe not autonomous vehicles. So we just make a switch out. And I think in reality, that's what you and that's what most people are thinking about when they think of autonomous vehicles is that, yep, I just replaced my own car. And right. then I think at some point down the line, instead of the car I have, which is not autonomous, I drive it, it will be an autonomous car. And won't right. that be great? And so that's the vision that we all think of because that's the most straightforward one. And what I'm trying to paint is this alternative vision that I want to call FAVES, wait for it, fleets of autonomous vehicles that are electric and shared. And if we can sample and sample that future when these vehicles come out, which I think we will, and if we can understand and start understanding the economics and that, yeah, it's true. I really do push the button on my app and it really does come in a minute and a half and it really doesn't take any time. and I really do get, I will think, why in heck would I ever own my own car if you're living in the metro area? So this idea, we have this choice of AVs versus FAVs. And it is true, what you said to me, is that really no one has thought this through. And so I feel like Um, What I'm doing today is I am talking to mayors in the pioneering cities, the people that are helping them, and trying to get some communities as individuals through community NGOs to start painting that possible picture for people. So people who live in cities and in these metro areas are saying, yeah, I want that other choice. I want that other choice because I want to spend $4,000 a year on transportation instead of 9000 And I want to have sidewalks and bike paths and trees. I want to have affordable 
housing in the place where that parking lot was, or I want to have green space, or I want to have a hospital. I don't know what you want. But that we can really have an opportunity to have a do-over of our cities, that our cities have now been completely structured around the car. And if we only need 10% of them, imagine what we could do with that space. But we have to put that vision, people have to understand that as a possibility and then fight for that possibility. Robin Chase is the co-founder of Zipcar and Venium. She's also the author of Peers, Inc. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Robin Chase has written about both her fears and her hopes when it comes to how self-driving cars are going to affect us. You can find her back-channel essay at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. If you live in, or even if you live near a city, you know that mayors have spent the last couple of decades trying to make their downtown safer and more livable. Parts of them have become innovation zones. There are now new parks. There's new public art. All sorts of people have moved downtown. You've got young singles and empty nesters. And in a lot of cities, that creative energy has had incredible results, except there's a price to success. And in this case, the price, to quote a former candidate for mayor in New York, is that the rent is too damn high. Alan Ehrenhold has spent decades studying American cities, and he's watched this recent reinvention very carefully. He's a senior editor at Governing Magazine and the author of The Great Inversion and the Future of the American City, among other books. Alan, good to have you back on the show. Nice to be here. Thank you. So... Many big cities in the U.S. have seen, I think it's fair to say, a surge in housing prices over the last few years. I wonder why there is such an increased demand for city living. Well, and there, there are theories. There, there's, there's no conclusive evidence, but there is the theory that today's young people, today's millennials, spend so much time on suburban sofas watching TV that they got bored with suburbia altogether and (laughs) they watched uh, Sex in the City and Friends and Seinfeld and Urban Life took on an appeal for them uh, that it hadn't had before. That's one idea. Mm -hmm. Another one, which which I'm a little more partial to, is that the more we communicate technologically uh, with social media and cell phones, the, the more starved we become for some real physical human contact. And so we have a generation that not only wants to spend a lot of time on the phone and on Twitter, but also wants to see people and get to know them. And that, that's, that's a combination that can be achieved with city life. And I think that that does play a role. So it sounds like we're seeing a combination of rich people move into cities. And you can see that just by looking at the prices in a lot of cities of, of, you know, these multi-million dollar condos that are being built. And young people. I mean, there may be some overlap, but it sounds like a lot of people in their 20s and 30s also want to live in cities. Well, and uh, there you have to make distinctions among cities. It's true that if, if the city you want to live in is Boston or Seattle or San Francisco or New York, it, it isn't enough to be young. You also have to have quite a bit of money. Yep. But it's worth pointing out, and it isn't 
talked about enough, that there's a whole second tier of cities, the places like Cincinnati and Indianapolis and Louisville. Right. And I could name a whole bunch more where downtowns are coming back, central cities are coming back, and they're still quite affordable. I mean, if you are a young person in your mid-20s and you've got a decent job and you want to live in the center of Louisville, you can do that. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be rich. So it's a mistake to assume that's what's happening in San Francisco and Boston is happening everywhere in the country. Right. But it is interesting, as you say, that you do see it right across the board. I mean, I visited Des Moines and Portland, Oregon, and you do see construction all over the place, maybe old industrial buildings being turned into sort of condos with a kind of urban brick feel, but, but you know, with the newest appliances. So you, you do see it in, in many, many different kinds of markets. Right. And, and uh, Des Moines is not a place where young people are priced out of the market yet. Right. It's not, since it's not a global city and it isn't going to be, it's not clear that that's going to happen, if ever, uh, for a long time. I, I would also point out that the, the uh, critics of all this will say, you take a survey of millennials and well under half of them really want to live in the center of a city. And uh, when their kids start getting a little older, they're going to move to the suburbs. It's important to note an answer to that, that the millennial generation is so huge that even if we're talking about 25% of them, 20% of them, that's enough to remake the face of uh, American cities all over the country. Now, I want to ask you for a second about that top tier of cities, you know, the New Yorks, the the San Franciscos. I mean, I'm, you know, here in Boston, I've, I've heard people say in L.A. That, that buyers, very wealthy buyers from other countries will show up almost with suitcases of cash and pay for very expensive homes and condos, essentially in all cash. I wonder how much interest there is that maybe didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago from foreign buyers in uh, cities. Well, uh, there again, you've got to make the distinction. High-rise buildings are going up in Manhattan and condos are being sold at incredibly high prices in the uh, multi-millions of dollars. And uh, that's really not a good thing. Uh, I mean, I, I think that You want a place like Manhattan to be uh, affordable, at least to the upper middle class of locals. Yeah. Even the wealthy start getting priced out at that point. Only the very, very wealthy can afford anything. Yeah. And that's what you might call hyper-gentrification. And it applies to Manhattan. It applies to San Francisco, to a lesser extent in places like Boston or Seattle. It doesn't apply all over the country. Wealthy investors from Hong Kong are not buying in downtown Cincinnati right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, cities support all sorts of jobs, right? I mean, not just CEOs, not just people who are sort of captains of industry kind of thing. There's lots of restaurants in cities. There's lots of cafes. There's lots of boutiques. um, And people work in those places. And there's lots of hotels. What happens to all the people who work in hotels and restaurants. And this is true maybe in in a a very exaggerated way when you look at uh, New York and San Francisco and stuff, where do those people live? But even in cities that are less pricey, it can be still hard for people who work in those jobs that support that city, the the things people love about that city, to find a place to live. Well, I, I think the answer in a lot of places is that there are working class suburbs, inner suburbs built and developed in the 1950s that are now becoming residences for the people who work at 
entry-level or slightly above entry-level jobs in the center of the city. So the short answer is they're moving to suburbia, and it's not uh, the leafy suburbia that we might think of. Uh, we're talking about fairly gritty inner suburbs, and I think if you look around Boston at, at the Brocktons and that at that kind of place, you'll see the towns where the workforce of, of the uh, affluent central city is, is uh, having to live in. Hmm. No, I mean, I do see... Here and elsewhere, there are major pushes by mayors all around the country to put in more affordable housing, to make sure that cities do not become places where only the wealthy, only the very wealthy can live, where a family could actually live that was sort of middle class. are, Are those pushes... You know, is that mostly a publicity thing? Is that really going to have any effect on cities? Well, we're really at the at the early stages of that. I know it's not just publicity, but it's a very difficult problem as, as cities are learning. It's possible to pass an ordinance stating that if you want to build in the, in, in, a, in the city, you've got to make your development 25 percent uh, affordable housing, as San Francisco did by referendum in June. But you have to be careful because if you make that requirement high enough, the developers just won't build anything. Mm-hmm. So there's no point in saying uh, it'll, it's got to be 50 percent affordable because nothing will get uh, built in that community. Also, most of the affordable housing laws that have been on the books up to now say that the developer can either uh, build the requisite number of affordable units or pay a fee uh, to the city. And what they're doing almost in every case is paying the fee rather than huh. uh, rather than doing the building. So you get affordable housing funds that are uh, getting quite uh, swollen with cash, uh, but not much is not much is getting built. Now, that can probably be adjusted in a way that would produce some more housing. There's also the theory, which I think has some validity, that the answer to the problem of affordable housing is just more housing of all kinds, including market rate. The greater the supply becomes the more you have a, I hate to use the word, but a trickle-down effect. So eventually more units at the lower ends of the spectrum will, be, will become available. So I, I think that the best answer is just build more. I'm Kara Miller talking to Alan Ehrenholt, a senior editor at Governing Magazine. You've written that one side effect of residential housing prices going up in the middle of cities is uh, that commercial uh, real estate also tends to go up, which means that some of what lured people to the cities in the first place, which is, you know, small boutiques, sort of mom and pop businesses, not, not the kind of shops that you can find at any old mall in the suburbs, those businesses themselves are being squeezed out. What do you see happening in terms of uh, commercial real estate? Well, that is happening. I I think you can do something about that. And uh, the New York City Council has debated this, and uh, uh, largely because the influence of of the real estate industry has, has not passed anything, even though it's been on the table for years. But you can restrict what landlords do when a lease expires. You can give commercial tenants a right to negotiate a lease at a reasonable increase over what they were paying before. That can be done. That's not as difficult as the residential problem. That really is a question of political will. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it is a shame to see neighborhoods that have revived and are full of restaurants and full of life lose their independently owned businesses. But, But that's a solvable problem. The top tier cities need to work on that. Now, give me a sense of what's happening 
to urban schools as wealthier, younger people move into cities. Um, Because urban schools have long uh, struggled to keep up with their suburban counterparts. Does this mean that urban folks are going to start sending their kids to the public schools? Are they going to say, you know what, we have so much money, I'm sending this kid to private school? Well, some people will will say that, but the number of people with enough money to afford a place in the center of a city and private schools is, is still a limited number of people. I think that we're already seeing at the lower levels, uh, kindergarten and the elementary grades, we're definitely seeing the effects of uh, affluent gentrifiers putting their kids in the public schools. And then, of course, you have some charter schools and other ways in which those people can uh, satisfy their their family's educational needs. When is that going to reach high school so that we see the people who move into cities uh, sticking with the public schools all the way through? I think that's a ways off yet. But uh, we're seeing it in the lower grades, and we're seeing in, we're seeing schools improve in those grades. You know, you have people running for office saying all over the country, it's very a familiar refrain, that uh, we won't really be able to save our city until the schools improve. We have to improve the schools, and then uh, the middle class will live in the city. But that almost that, that has it almost backwards. The schools improve after people move back to the city. They mm. they are not they are not the reason. That they are they are the uh, the end of the process and not the beginning. But I think we're starting to see it happen. So it sounds like in ten or twenty years, the kind of image people have of urban schools now might be a completely different image. I mean, and and maybe even flipped a little bit with suburban schools. Well, certainly we're seeing uh, the effects of working class and poorer people uh, moving to the suburbs. We're seeing the effect that that is having on suburban schools. Suburban schools are now remarkably diverse, multinational, multilingual. Yeah. Um, all the things that we used to say about uh, central city right, schools right. are now much more true of uh, particularly inner suburban, but even uh, further out suburban schools. Uh, the, the, that is where you see great diversity. Is there a value, and I wonder if we're losing it, but is there a value to socioeconomic diversity inside of cities? Well, there's some value. I, I don't think it's the only value to pursue. The truth is that economic classes have always separated themselves uh, in, in any in any city that we uh that we know about the the, the, uh, the closest thing to uh, economic diversity existed in black neighborhoods prior to the 1960s because they people no matter how much money they had couldn't live anywhere else right. and you had doctors living next to janitors and all all sorts of um, examples of diversity within the black community but that wasn't in general a good thing that that was forced by segregation mm-hmm. so I I think we're uh, somewhat unrealistic in. The idea that uh, economic segregation is is a fleeting phenomenon that we are going to be able to to do away with. I think it's uh, it's part of uh, urban civilization. Does it worry you what's happening to cities, or do you think you know this is just sort of another chapter in the way Americans live and the way Americans organize themselves, and there will be you know another chapter to come. Um, well, there there are many worrisome things, and uh, we've talked about them. We've talked about the uh, empty high-rise condos in in Manhattan and uh, and San Francisco. That's not good, 
And we've talked about uh, mom and pop uh, businesses having to leave right. uh, Greenwich Village or the East Village or parts of Boston. That's not a good thing either. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, is it a good thing that the center, that, that central cities are safer, more vibrant, more interesting, and, and more attractive than they were 20 years ago? Of course that's a good thing. To say that because gentrification has downsides, which it obviously does, that the whole idea of reclaiming central cities is is not a good thing. I think that's very short-sighted. Alan Ehrenholt is a senior editor at Governing Magazine. He's also author of The Great Inversion and the Future of the American City, among other books. Alan, thanks for being here. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We've got links for you on our website if you want to read more about foreign money flowing into high-end U.S. real estate, including some fascinating stuff from the New York Times on shell companies, which let foreign buyers make their purchases secretly. And these companies are helping to remake American cities. The links are at innovationhub.org. If you feel like it's kind of unfair that some cities have become places where only big shots can get a pad, there are some little guys making inroads too. But I'm talking super little. Think for a minute about all the people who are stacked on top of each other in cities, not to mention dogs and cats and ferrets and rats and cockroaches, and you'll start to realize this is microbial heaven. It's kind of a little bit disturbing. I try not to think about it too much. But every surface we touch, actually our our bodies, the human body, is covered in microbes. Your skin, your gut, your mouth, your eyes have mites in them. Microbes are everywhere. Holly Bick studies microbes. She's an assistant professor of nematology at the University of California, Riverside. But she used to be at New York University. And she was part of a study that tried to figure out something both simple and complicated. What's the microbial situation on ATM keypads in New York City? So really the rationale behind the study was just this lack of knowledge. We don't know anything about the microbes that live on ATM buttons. But um, I kind of think of ATMs as this watering hole in the city, right? Everyone needs to go get cash at some point, especially New York. So humans just sort of flock to these ATMs and we're all we're using them and we're using them with a very specific part of our body, which is our, our fingers and our hands. What the scientists did was go around and swab ATMs in Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. And what'd they find? So we found seafood, we found chicken, um, we found DNA signatures from people's pets, so cats and dogs. And then we found a lot of microbes, which we really don't know what they're doing out there. We found some sort of novel microbes, which aren't very well characterized. They might be coming from the environment. They might just be fungal species, which are kind of in the air, floating around on dust and, and falling down. And then um, we also found a lot of bacteria that are associated with human skin. So we're shedding microbes and we're using the ATMs, and that's coming from our skin microbiome too. Not super appetizing. So you're not just ingesting your own food, but also little bits of the meals of a bunch of people who use the ATM before you. What they didn't find was that there were many differences between the boroughs. So the keypads in Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn all looked pretty much the same. Urban areas actually have a whole microbial world that is very powerful and completely invisible. You can't get rid of it no matter how hard you try. And Bick argues you shouldn't want to. 
the idea that, you know, we need to be super clean and sterilized all the time is actually really bad for our health because it can make our immune system just completely overreact when we do touch dirt or come into contact with pets. So, you know, in a way, microbes are helping us because they're helping our body not to freak out. You know, our body is the product of however many million years of evolution. And so we can't just turn off our immune system and we can't, you know, control how it reacts to things. So actually being a little bit dirty is really healthy for us in, in the long term. But if you're a city dweller, or even if you're a city visitor, and you're trying to convince yourself not to be scared by the invisible microbial world around you, consider Bic's advice to those of us who are now grossed out by ATM keypads. I would say if you swab the dishes in your dishwasher, you would probably find similar pieces of DNA because DNA is really resistant. It survives. So, you know, if you're not washing an ATM keypad like you're washing your dishes, then of, of course it's going to be there. And I think that many of the surfaces that we come into contact with do have this kind of DNA and, and microbes and different things on them all the time. I mean, your computer keyboard, if you eat at your desk. So um, just because we know about it on ATM keypads doesn't mean it doesn't exist. In, in other areas of your life every day. So don't worry. Holly Bick is an assistant professor at the University of California, Riverside. We'll have a link to the study she worked on while at NYU. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. There are cities all over the world that aren't really cities. They don't have skyscrapers or big city halls or sports stadiums or anything that you would think that a city would have. The thing is, though, millions of people live in them. They were put up to provide housing for just a few weeks or a few months, and that was years ago. They popped up out of nothing, often a piece of desert or a piece of farmland. And even though they've got a lot of people, calling them cities is questionable. It's really built as, as a, a temporary storage facility for people, and it's not meant to be at all um, a place where people should be living decades. And that is, um, that is the point we, we need to rethink. Killian Kleinschmidt is the founder of the Innovation and Planning Agency, a nonprofit that connects refugees with resources around the world. He's been watching these instant cities go up for a long time, like Zatari in Jordan, which is about as big as Scranton, Pennsylvania, or Trenton, New Jersey. And Kleinschmidt, who used to work for the UN Refugee Agency, wonders if we should take people fleeing wars and famines and places increasingly devastated by climate change and just build them some good instant cities. Because life in refugee camps, which is where more and more of us humans are living, it's rough. People spend most of their time in actually accessing the services. So they will uh, queue up to get their food in a, in a food distribution. Then we will go to the water point and collect water. Um, then right. there, somebody issues uh, nappies or, or shoes. And so they spend the entire time, in fact, of passing time and, and getting assistance or trying to get hold of assistance. So that's the main focus of life. If you're lucky, there is a school which has been established and kids uh, eventually go to school or not. So that is not what, let's say, a productive life and a constructive life should look like. And that is one of the main, the main issues. We, we look at people in these places as a liability, as aid recipients, but not as people who actually have a capability and, are in fact, are an opportunity because they have knowledge, they have skills. 
they have manpower and woman power. They are they can be very active people, but they're prevented from being active because the systems are outdated, and because we don't look at people in a way that they should be developing for the future. And when you look at some of these. Uh, refugee camps that have been around a long time, like there decades, there have been camps that have been around for decades. At what point does a camp turn the corner from this kind of human storage facility into a place where, you know, uh, some people sell food and some people teach and other people go to school and then, you know, some people, I mean, there's all sorts of things you could be doing. When does that corner turn? Well, usually quite fast, but uh, what is problematic is that it's not part of the official system. Uh, look, Let's look at um, Zatari camp in, in Jordan. Yes, after a month or so, the first shops came up. And what are they selling in these stores inside camps? Basically, they're, they're selling everything what, what is not part of the aid package. The aid package is a standardized package. You eat the same, you dress the same, uh, you get the, the same shoes, the same water, the same everything the same which is actually quite unique. Uh, everybody should be made equal, but in fact, no, people have different tastes. People are human beings, so they will have different uh, desires, which of course then leads to these informal markets, which leads to some making money and buying the aid goods for cheap money uh, in order to get cash into the hands of, of people who then would be buying even sometimes, um, I mean, in Zatar we had curtain shops, we had shops uh, selling green plants, we had bicycle shops, we had, I mean, they're still there. Um, there's even a travel agency um, dealing with people coming from the Middle East and visiting their families. Wow. So people are like doing interior decoration. I mean, if they have curtains, if they're selling curtains, I assume people are interior decorating their homes in the camps. Yeah, but, but here comes now something which was very significant uh, in Zatari to observe, is people needed that individuality. So people are trying to regain that me and myself, and then I will be giving to the community. Then I can actually begin to be social and, and so on. And we from the aid world, we put it the other way around. We, we force people to go together to the toilet, to the, to the washroom, to cook together. And we don't accept that people have any individual desires because that's not practical, it's not the logistic answer. That is what we need to rethink. And bringing these two agendas together, once we recognize that this place will be really not temporary, and that's, I think, should be taking place, let's say, after a few months. Hmm. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking to Killian Kleinschmidt about redesigning refugee camps. Now, if I wanted to build a building, and I mean just like one building myself, there'd be a whole process I'd have to go through dealing with permits and dealing with the government and all sorts of things. We've got a world with so many refugees in so many parts of the world, but are we set up as a world to deal with creating, you know, basically new cities for these people to live in? I mean, who provides the money? Who's in whose, you know, domain is the... Now, uh, providing the licenses for the structures to be built. You know, I mean, it seems like something that's almost outside of any individual country. And I just wonder if we're up to it. Yeah, I mean, look, I will say something which is maybe not mainstream uh, for sure. We're talking, quote unquote, only about 21 million refugees under the protection of the Refugee Convention. But we talk about billions of people 
living in very bad conditions as well. In a way, um, we should be including into this discussion the rapid urbanization we are um, experiencing throughout the world, the slums, the um, sort of uh, very unsafe living conditions. So let's not forget, we're going to get tens of millions of climate refugees over the next uh, few decades if we continue like that. Considering that 75% of us will be living in these urban agglomerations in uh, 2050, the latest, we better make sure that this is well managed. So we need to find financing and governance models to get this going very fast. We have to be very grateful to the million and a half people or so who came over the last couple of years to, to Europe because they have been shaking up the system. That was a shock therapy and saying, hey, my God, now they're coming to us. Um, yeah, in, but in the reaction in Europe hasn't been, you know, speaking of an appetite, I don't, it's been rough, right? It's a rough ride, but it exposes our weaknesses and it's very good to recognize problems, even populism and, and even rising fascism in a way, it's good to know that this exists. But the appetite I find is absolutely amazing within, within particularly I would say the private sector, the, the developers, the, uh, the people who actually do impact investment and so on, to look into new models of how to get this together. And everywhere people, simply because we're beginning to change the narrative, we're not talking about the victims anymore, we're not talking about this is only about uh, charity and poverty and donate more, but uh, also having everybody to realize that, well, it's, it's actually from a capitalist point of view, it's actually uh, part of an expansion of markets if you take it uh, from that side, or it's, it's also our collective survival not to exclude um, basically half of the world's population from what the world can do. Do you worry at all that um, if you make refugee camps into something that is better for the people who are in them, who obviously don't really want to be there, at least didn't want to be there initially, that in some ways you're maybe condoning what's happening to them in the, you know, in the country that they fled from, or that you're making it easier for uh, bad leaders to drive people out of countries because after all, there's some very nice refugee camps they can go to. Well, yes, uh, there's of course that that uh, angle to this, and that's uh, it's always a danger that we that we give up on on di diplomacy. I mean, I, I'm not very impressed with our um, current levels of success when it comes to diplomacy and ending conflicts through negotiation or something. I, I don't think we have we have been very successful. But um, in the same time, um, now from a people's perspective, um, holding people hostage to to the situation saying because you have to go back we don't give you opportunities because you have to go back we don't allow you to progress uh, in exile and i think or in displacement i think this is this is really cynical and i, I think it's, it's, it's actually an opportunity to help change and in a way undermine autocratic uh, systems in bringing two people better um, access to better governance access to tech access to a modern world uh, and here a little, a little story from, uh, from the de displaced camps in, in Pakistan, in Peshawar, close to the Afghan border, where in 2009 I was talking with, with displaced uh, little girls um, from the tribal areas. They were saying, it's great, finally I can go to school, finally I have actually 
friends I can play with and I'm not locked in and if you want uh, now in, inventing here but I'm not getting, going to get married when I'm 12 years old because now mm. I have seen the world and that's that is also that opportunity for change and in and actually rebuilding uh, rebuilding or having people access um, a, a more modern world is, is quite often um, significant maybe to say the myth of return to the place of origin we have to to get away with this as well you said there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Um, is there a picture that you would want to paint of what a refugee camp that had been done the right way uh, really might might look like? Uh, we're seeing, uh, for instance, in Pakistan, uh, lots of camps transformed into villages and little towns. Um, mm. But uh, very interesting observation. Uh, you still see in those villages and towns and that applies as well for many of the Palestinian camps which have become de facto um, urban settlements uh, that you can still see today how the first tents were pitched and that is not a sign of the way of how uh, sustainable grids and urban systems should be built. Killian Kleinschmidt is the founder of the Innovation and Planning Agency, a nonprofit that connects refugees with resources from around the world. He also formerly worked for the UN Refugee Agency. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you want to hear Innovation Hub while you're traveling during the holidays, you can find us on iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Carolyn Lester, and engineer Doug Sugertz. And a special thanks this week to our intern, Jonathan Gang, who is leaving us, and we wish him luck out there. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International.